been taking account of political reality, though I'm not completely without sympathy for those who don't. My father, who cast his first vote in 1932, and my mother, who cast hers in 1940, never voted for anybody except Norman Thomas until 1952, when the Socialist Party nominated someone else, and Mom and Dad finally got around to taking a dip in the mainstream. I don't fault them in the slightest, because... A. Norman was their dear friend. In 1941 he attended their wedding. Two years later he sent me a letter, welcoming me into the world and complimenting me on my choice of parents. B. He was a great man and a moral paragon, and C. There was no danger he would inadvertently hand the White House to the Republicans, FDR being a perennial shoe-in. 1948 is a tougher case, but it wouldn't have been the end of the world if that Chicago Daily Tribune headline had turned out to be accurate. Thomas E. Dewey, though a stiff with a silly mustache, was a moderate and an internationalist. Nevertheless, as my folks eventually came to see, there are less risky, equally effective ways to introduce the public to progressive ideas than mounting third-party potential spoiler candidacies for president. As long as our elections are plurality-winner-take-all affairs, we are going to have, and we're better off having, two big parties that square off against each other after choosing their nominees in a free-for-all. It's like the National League and the American League. You've got to win the pennant if you want a shot at the series. In the United States, in other words, if you want to participate in the kind of electoral politics that potentially or actually has something to do with governmental power, you're either a Democrat or a Republican. So I'm a Democrat. For fifteen straight elections, I've always wanted the Democrat to win, and I've always ended up trying to do my part to make that happen. But how deeply my emotions get invested in the effort has depended, now that I think about it, on three things. First, the apparent scariness, dangerousness, or wickedness of the Republican nominee, a big factor in 60, 68, and 72, Nixon, 1980, Reagan, and 2004, Bush fees, a less important one for me in 1952 and 56, Eisenhower, 76, Ford, 84, Reagan, 88, and 92, Bush Pair, 96, Dole, and 2000, Bush Fees, whose lineage and compassionate conservative prattle, along with the relatively stable national and international outlook Clinton left behind, offered few hints that he would be either willing or able to inflict historical levels of national and global destruction. Second, the talents or potential transformativeness of the Democratic nominee. For me, an unusually important factor only in 1960, JFK, 1992, Clinton, and, to a lesser extent, 2000, Gore. Third, the closeness of the race. When defeat is a foregone conclusion, as it was in 1956, 1972, 1984, and, well before the end, 1988, one more or less automatically fortifies one's emotions against shock and despair. The 1980 campaign was, for me, 
a special case. Four years earlier, I would have been disappointed, but not devastated, if Jimmy Carter had lost to President Ford, who wasn't such a bad fellow. I had no idea that, out of the blue, I would soon be recruited for the White House staff, and that, in consequence, my life would be permanently divided into two periods, B.C.E. and A.D., before Carter's election and after his defeat. I had been deeply interested in politics, B.C.E., but from my perch as a gallivanting young reporter for the New Yorker's Talk of the Town section, I wrote mostly about other things, rock music, oddball Manhattan characters, baseball, what have you. For a brief spell, I moonlighted as Rolling Stone's first movie critic. A.D., it was pretty much all politics. The four years I spent as a president...